Ask Sherwin-Williams during the March Spring Sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And, of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Stop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, welcome back. How's the jet lag? Uh, it's um, it's rather extreme, Tommy. Mm. Uh, yeah, I was in I was in Asia. I was in Hong Kong, um, and uh, that city's changed a bit uh, mm-hmm. since I I've bet been. It has. You know, um, but uh, it just gets harder with each year of age. I think uh, doesn't get easier. Like the sands of time. We need uh, Dr. Ronnie. To yep. come on these trips. You need a mag, you need a maga congressman doctor. We do, we knew. You know, just yeah. pushing pills. Just push everybody. pills. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know who else needs some some pills? At least the upper version are the Boston Celtics. Well, you have to remember, I'm a huge Knicks fan, and the Heat that are now torching your Celtics just beat the Knicks. So I've experienced them being beaten with by the Heat this playoffs. Yeah. Are, does that mean you're rooting for the Heat now? Yes, it does because it you know retroactively makes your team look better. That, that's yeah. exactly right. They, they I look tried and true. I get it. Also, there should be no love for Boston fans if you're a New Yorker. No, but we also hate the Heat because we had the rivalry with the Heat in the '90s. But mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know. I kind of like this weird team like of old guys. Yeah, Jimmy Butler. He's the man. Like as I get older, I I tend to like older athletes more, even though they're like. I think of them as older than me, even though they're like 35 years old. I'm like, I'm like oh, Jimmy Butler's so old, you know? Yeah, you hear about He's cracking routine. like 35, you know? <laughs> He's so, uh, kills me. Uh, well, it's great to have you back. We have a lot to cover today. Uh, we are going to talk about the president of Ukraine's far-flung travels, speaking of jet lag. Uh, the latest on the war effort, uh, including reports of saboteurs in Russia. Saboteurs yeah. is fun to say. Uh, how the Air Force missed multiple chances to stop the Pentagon leaker. An update on Trump's classified document hoarding uh, executions and personnel changes in Iran. Another tragic Pentagon drone strike. Uh, uh, AI causing chaos online and then much, much more. And then Ben... You did today's interview. What are folks going to hear about? So I talked to Mark Malik Brown, who's the president of the Open Society Foundation, obviously kind of the the biggest global foundation promoting human rights. And we talked about how, um, among other things, um, we talked about how the effort to promote human rights in civil society is more complicated today than it has been in a very long time because of all these authoritarians and all these efforts to kind of crack down. Um, We talked about an important story, Tommy, that we... We haven't touched on yet, which is the the debt crisis that so many countries are facing. Mm. Um, basically, big topic of the G seven. Yeah, way. big topic of the G seven because we talked about the G seven, uh, the challenges of America, kind of talking about democracy, but then having people like Modi at the G seven. Mm-hmm. Um, this challenge of a whole bunch of developing countries and middle income countries that 
are, are just totally squeezed by the combination of COVID and high interest rates and all kinds of stuff that is risking default. Like uh, Mark was just in Kenya and they're not paying salaries to government mm. employees. Like this is happening now. Um, and then what are the bright spots out there? Where, what can we learn from some of the stuff that's going well in terms of beating back populism and autocracy? He was just in Brazil, so talked about what he saw there. So it's a, it's a really good conversation about the current state of the effort to promote democracy and civil society generally. Excellent. We might need him to uh, do a little more work here. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, on, that too. You know. <laughs> we, we Actually, interestingly, I talked a bit at the end about how the demonization of George Soros here yes. uh, impacts their work globally because Elon Musk had just tweeted something like George Soros is committed to destroying civilization or something. So we talked a bit about the Soros conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah, the Elon's just lost his mind. Um, by the way, uh, that sounds like a fascinating interview. If listeners want uh, a general daily roundup of all the top news stories, including many of the ones you just touched on, then they should subscribe to the What A Day newsletter. It's crooked.com slash daily to subscribe. And if you want a hilarious once a week deep dive into all things British politics, check out Pod Save the UK. From strikes to scandals to very funny jokes, hard jokes, they have got you covered. So uh, check it out. Chat shit, get banged. Chat shit, get banged. All right. So a lot of news this week on the Ukraine front. Uh, President Zelensky has been popping up everywhere. He's like the uh, Ukrainian Carmen Sandiego. <laughs> he went to, how dated is that joke? Carmen Sandiego, think that's on anymore? I mean, it's it's in your your my wheelhouse. Right. No. Okay. But, well, we'll work yeah. on that. So uh, Zelensky went to Saudi Arabia. He delivered a speech at the Arab League's meeting. I get why Zelensky will go anywhere and talk to anyone, but the fact that he had to deliver a speech before the Arab League in an audience that included Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, who was in power because the Russians and the Wagner Group in particular propped him up and committed war crimes on his behalf for the last decade, is truly appalling. Yeah, um, this is such a crazy world a week. Uh, you know, maybe it's because I was in withdrawal last week too, but like this meeting itself was fascinating. So I know we'll get to elements of Ukraine around the G7, but like this was the first meeting in which they were going to bring Assad back into the Arab League fold. In Essentially yeah. full normalization of Bashar al-Assad. It's like it never happened. There he is. It has been building for a while as we've talked about. And I have to say like MBS, Mohammed Salman, he's the... You know, he was the host of this meeting in Saudi Arabia, but he's also kind of the king of the Arab League too. Mm -hmm. um, they, they they played this pretty interestingly. <laughs> like, I, this is not a praise for Mohammed Salman, but like it is, like there, there's something that he does that that is pretty clever, which is he balances. You know, he doesn't give any side everything they want, but he gives everybody a little bit of something. Yeah, and he kind of operates as this free agent between the China Russia block and the the U.S. Western bloc. And so he had to know that Assad going there was going to get a lot of negative attention in the West, was going to call into question whether they're fully embracing Russia because yep. Assad is kind yep. of Russia's guy, like Trojan horse in the Arab League. And I think very consciously, he's like, you know what I could do? The only thing I could do to kind of counterbalance that is have Zelensky uh, here as kind of the avatar of the West, right. you know, and give him a big platform. Um, and, and so it was interesting in that regard, it was MBS sending a message to both sides, China and the US, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get my best deal wherever it is, and I'm going to play both sides of this thing. Um, Zelensky, I thought was interesting. He, he did call out some people in the room for kind of not siding with Ukraine yes. for, you know, he, he he showed some guts. Like he didn't just go and kiss the ring as it were. Like, um, and I think what he knows is the Saudis and the Emiratis have a lot of cash, not only 
could that support, you know, things like Ukrainian reconstruction, but that they talk to the Russians and who knows where this war is going. And we've seen the Saudis involved in prisoner exchanges and Zelensky said, maybe you could do something like that again. Mm -hmm. So whether we like it or not, and I don't think you and I love it, um, this is a sign that the Saudis and the Emiratis are are players and are going to stay players. And, And let's be honest, it's probably smart of Zelensky to have a direct relationship with the Saudis and not go through the United States anymore because yeah. that relationship is uh, That's a good point. frayed. That's a good point. So then, so Zelensky goes- uh, uh, from... Although it should be noted that Jake Sullivan was in Saudi like a week or so before this. Yeah, Jake's been doing a lot of mop-up yeah, work. Yeah, so you know, made you wonder- He's been in London yeah. figuring out this F-16 thing. He had to yeah. go meet with the Chinese in Vienna, I think, yeah. for eight hours. Then he went to the Saudis. So yeah, yeah, he's been doing a lot of work. So Zelensky goes from the Arab League to uh, the G7, a surprise appearance in Japan. This trip was orchestrated apparently by President Macron of France, who sent a French jet to get Zelensky in Poland, fly him to Japan. In his speech, Zelensky compared the total destruction of Bakhmut uh, to the aftermath of the US dropping a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima. I'm genuinely curious sort of how that played in, you know, to Japanese audiences given, you know, the scale of destruction from a nuclear weapon. But anyway, the G7 leaders themselves rolled out new sanctions on Russia. They celebrated the success of this American-led effort to set a cap on the price of Russian oil, which stabilized supply while reducing uh, Russia's revenues. But the big headline was about Biden's policy change on providing F-16s to Ukraine. So the U.S. is now going to train Ukrainian pilots to fly the F-16. Longer term, we will work with allies like Poland and the Netherlands to facilitate the transfer of F-16s to Ukraine. This training is going to take about four months. So the F-16s will not be part of this spring offensive, which is now a summer offensive, (laughs) I guess, Ben. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners are wondering kind of like what happened here? Like I have whiplash on this one uh, again, too. What got them from no to yes? I talked to some folks in the White House, and it's clear that this is a recognition that this war is not ending anytime soon. Uh, that long term, even if the Russians stopped fighting right now, Ukraine needs a modern air force to defend its borders. In terms of the escalation risk, Politico reported that the administration has basically decided that Russia responds to new weapon systems primarily with rhetoric, but they haven't seen you know sort of the worst case scenarios we talked about. So I don't know, Ben. What do you make of this move? Was this inevitable for a long time? I mean, it started to feel inevitable after the tank thing because, you know, we went through this with long-range artillery, the HIMARS. Then we went through it with the tanks. And and there was this pattern of, like, kind of almost making the Ukrainians work for it and justify it in order to get people comfortable with it. I mean, well, first of all, I was going to ask you, like, don't you think Macron loved Zelensky flying around these summits in a French plane? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I have to say, like, the sequencing of this... Um, was really interesting to play back in your head. And and I have to say, like, pretty impressive because if you look at where, by uh, presumably by the Ukrainians and the U.S. and, you know, the other staunch Ukrainian supporters in mm-hmm. Europe, because, you know, we've covered for the last kind of month, first of all, Zelensky's travel, he, he went to the Netherlands, right, which is a key F-16 country. They'd mm-hmm. be doing some of the training, maybe providing. He went to Poland, yep. also like a key, key country for doing training and providing F-16s. Then he went to Germany, well, Italy, Germany, France, UK. Yeah, and yeah. Clearly, there was like an effort to kind of bring everybody along who's going to be a part of this. You see him at Checkers know? with Rishi Sunak? Yeah, Rishi. I think Boris Johnson wanted that picture? Rishi tries so hard though. Like he <laughs> takes off the jacket. He does like the this the skinny shirt with the skinny tie and like he just looks like not as cool as Zelensky, you know? It looks like the kid no. who's like yeah. glad to be at yeah. like the lunch table. Total nerd. 
But so, like, they clearly sequenced this in a way to kind of bring everybody along and kind of create this momentum that would crescendo at the G7. And I think that was pretty well done. Now, what does it really mean? I agree with you. So you're right. I think it, th- this is not for this offensive. It's for a long-term fight. I guess the thing I'd add to it is on the escalation risk, you know, what you really worry about is the F-16 is a weapon that they could use to attack Russia, right. in Russia, right? right? And so- In practice, we- you would probably get shot down immediately by like an S-400 missile defense system, right? Like nobody's That's flying true. into the other's airspace at the moment because you will just get smoked. You get smoked. But like, I think like the two things are- for escalation are like, will the Russians respond just because we provided them this yeah, weapon? Yeah. Or might the Ukrainians do something with this weapon that that you know we would be worried about? And, and so in a way, it's a signal not just that this war is going to go on and they're going to need this stuff into next year and beyond for safe skies or safer skies uh, over Ukraine, but it, it's kind of a vote of trust in the Ukrainians to not um, do something you know with this weapon that would be beyond what we're comfortable with. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a positive sign, I guess, that, that the Biden team feels a degree of trust in the Ukrainians. We're going to probably talk about this, <laughs> some of these border cross-border attacks mm-hmm. into Russia that might test that. But yeah, it, 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 they clearly wanted this G7 to kind of be a moment of momentum. The F-16, some new sanctions, some new money, all this diplomatic offensive. It's kind of the last piece before this spring slash summer offensive. Yeah, maybe fall. Yeah, that they could do diplomatically. And maybe it's kind of lowering expectations a bit because then you can start to say, well, they got the F-16s coming in the fall. You know, like it's a way to kind of take some of the heat off this offensive. That's a really good point. Uh, We'll talk about some of the non-Ukraine G7 news in a minute, but just staying with Ukraine because you you hinted at this. So Yegevny Prigozhin, our our favorite mercenary head of the Wagner Group, says that his troops are now in control of the town of Bakhmut. Bakhmut is this tiny little town. There's no real strategic significance, but it has been the site of months of some of those brutal fighting uh, imaginable. There's a long piece in The New Yorker out right now by a guy named Luke Mogelson, who spent, I think, two weeks on the front lines in eastern Ukraine. And if you really want to understand what this war is like in practice, I suggest reading it. It sounds like a living hell. The Pentagon, meanwhile, said they found another $3 billion in initial funding. (laughs) Uh, for Ukraine after an accounting error. It's the only building in the world where you could find $3 billion. $3 billion. I'm sure that won't lead to any conspiracy (laughs) theories or or founded conspiracy theories. So what you mentioned, Ben, so the other news that happened this week is an armed group launched an attack inside Russia in the city of uh, Belgorod, which is right on the border. A group called the Free Russia Legion took credit for this assault. They said Ukraine was aware of their actions, but not behind them. Regardless, there were days of soldiers running around a Russian city in heavily armored vehicles. Shortly before we started recording, Russia said they killed, I think, all of them, about 70 people. They ended this incursion. Um, So I don't know. This is like the 10th time this has happened. You can't really tell who's behind this stuff. But I don't know, I've seen some people suggest maybe this is the kind of splashy thing you do to distract before a big offensive. Maybe not. Maybe we're thinking too hard now. I don't know. What was your take on this? I think it's, yeah, I think it's really interesting. You know, these guys claim to be essentially kind of the Russian resistance, right? right. So they, and claim, I don't, you know, plausibly claim uh, that they are Russians who want to help Ukraine because they hate the war and they want to destabilize the Russian political system and they want to take attention away from the front uh, into Russia. Interestingly, that in the command structure of Ukraine, they fall under this umbrella of like the foreign legion mm-hmm. that we've talked about. So there's Americans fighting in that. There's there's Brits fighting in that. They were careful to say they weren't directed by Ukraine, but like that is 
a part of the Ukrainian you know, um, structure and the Ukrainians didn't act like they didn't know about it. Um, I think the main thing for me is, yeah, it could be tied to the offensive and try to distract the Russians. But I, I've said this a couple of times before. I, the longer this war goes on, I think the more the Ukrainians are going to do stuff inside of Russia because it's the natural impulse to want to lash out. And as we talked about car bomb assassinations, pipeline and infrastructure attacks, things have blown up in Crimea. Although, you know, that's not Russia, obviously, that's Ukraine, but it's, you know, Russia sees it that way. And, and so to me, it does speak to this kind of variable in the war, which is what happens if there's more and more of these attacks inside of Russia? Might that be the thing that triggers some escalation by the Russians? Or might it actually really start to weaken Putin at home? Prigozhin, to your point, like, used it to attack the Russian military, look yeah. how weak the military is. So it kind of played into the far right and the the people that are to, to Putin's right somehow in Russia, talking about how this is you know outrageous that the military could let this happen, like the drone over the Kremlin. So I think we're going to see more of this, and um, and it's just a it's a it, to me it's one of the most interesting variables in the war because it's the one thing that could be you know not a game changer but at least something that causes the Russians to to think differently. About yeah, it. for sure. Speaking of the the finding $3 billion in the budget, <laughs> 60 Minutes is a great piece this week or this Sunday, this past Sunday, I think, about uh, military contractor price gouging that is worth watching. It's a six-month investigation into us, you know, paying 10 grand for a part that NASA pays $200 for. So, you know, as these debt ceiling talks are happening, no one's talking about the Pentagon budget. Well, at least it's not the focus of attention or where cuts would be if the Republicans had their way, but there seems to be some fat there. Yeah. And, and you know, the thing is the, the, the better proposal around when the Re Republicans started to talk about defunding the Ukrainian stuff in, in, in the end of last year, there was a proposal for like an inspector general of this. Uh, yeah, that's a good idea. I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I get that the Biden administration, like, um, you know, the executive branch is always reluctant to have added oversight and accountability, but like, it seems like that's not a bad place for this to land, especially if we're going to have to provide this for a, a longer time, like having some kind of special IG or, you know, we used to have this around uh, Iraq and Afghanistan funding. Uh, to me, that makes sense. Did you? It seems like you were watching Zelensky's uh, social media. I will say it's funny. You mentioned Rishi. The, the contrast in the personalities between Olaf Schultz, Macron, and Rishi Sunak with Zelensky, because like, Olaf Schultz is like super business-like yep. and, you know, he's just like walking through hallways with the guy. Macron is like very emotional and he, he's always got like a hand draped on his shoulder and, you know. Does he look anguished? He looks anguished okay. and, but like, and then Rishi just looks like this guy. He's just happy to be yeah, there. He's just happy to be there. It's a really funny window into the, the European leaders. You know? uh, I love it. I love it. Uh, okay. So in some non-Ukraine G7 news, speaking of like the awkward family photos, the leaders talked a lot about debt restructuring, as you mentioned, the yeah. top end and how to make institutions like the World Bank work or work at all for countries in the global south who need assistance. They talked a lot about China, including China's unfair economic practices, making supply chains more resilient in the event of economic pressure by China or Russia. For example, you know, uh, Biden team wants to get other countries to make semiconductors so that the Chinese can't surround Taiwan, cut off the world supply of semiconductors and cause a huge crisis. President Biden was able to get some buy-in 
from G7 countries for U.S. export controls that prevent the sale of certain technologies to China. So the Chinese were not thrilled about this focus, um, uh, but still Biden seemed bullish about uh, talking to Chinese President Xi Jinping soon. There's nothing scheduled, nothing announced, but they haven't talked since the spy balloon incident. Looming over this whole summit was the debt ceiling standoff back in Washington and uh, concern that our idiotic politics would tank the global economy. President Biden had to cut his trip short. He canceled a visit to Papua New Guinea in Australia. It would have been the first U.S. presidential visit to Papua New Guinea. Leaders from 17 other countries were planning to go to Papua New Guinea for a big meeting. So it wasn't just this like one bilateral trip. It was a much bigger thing in Australia. Biden was supposed to meet with the Quad, which is what nerds call meetings between the U.S., Japan, India and Australia. Ben, this is the second time in a decade that Republicans have manufactured a crisis that forced the president of the United States, this time Biden, the last time Obama, to cancel a foreign trip. October 2013 was when Obama had to skip a major summit in Asia. How do you quantify the cost of a cancellation like that, of our politics just making us look like incompetent? So I think this one is pretty bad. Um, and look, it was bad in 2013. I don't think it was as bad because... First of all, the summit was in Brunei, which is a bit problematic. The Sultan there. It's true. Uh, not no friend of. Did he uh, own a bunch know. of hotels in L.A.? Yeah, the Polo Lounge over you know uh, in Beverly yes. Hills. But the, here's why this is bad in this context. Um, first of all, uh, the whole point of this Asia strategy is to kind of counter China, right? That's no secret, right? China's message to all of these countries, whether it's the Pacific Island countries where they're throwing around a lot of money and leverage or even the Australias and Japans of the world mm -hmm. is, hey, you at least know who we are. We're, we are who we are. Xi Jinping's right. president for life. Um, we may be uh, bullies, but like you kind of know the terms or transactional, right? The Americans in the Chinese argument, the Americans are dysfunctional. You can't trust them. They break agreements or they go from Obama to Trump to Biden. The thing they say now might be different two years from now. And so the reason this is damaging is the cancellation is entirely consistent with the Chinese narrative. Right, there's like, it's, see? Yeah, see, like, they're so, dis we've been telling you democracy is dysfunctional, and this is, they're so dysfunctional that they're putting the whole global economy at risk because the dollar is a reserve currency that the Chinese don't also like. And so that's a problem. And in places like the Pacific Islands, like I, I would hope Biden would go back because to plan some big summit and raise expectations and not show up, um, I think is quite damaging, and the Chinese will make good use of that, you mm -hmm. know? That, she doesn't get uh, extorted by the Politburo Standing Committee. Yeah, exactly. He, he doesn't have a Kevin McCarthy. And I'm, I'd rather live in a democracy, even if it means we have Kevin McCarthy. But because the other thing is that the G7, they, 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 they came to some common ground on China. But like there are some real differences between the U.S. and Europe on China. And these export controls you talk about are a big part of it because the U.S. is essentially trying to deny inputs into the Chinese economy. So certain technologies are restricted from going to China, but increasingly also certain investments, right? Like you, you they don't want investment from the US or Europe um, to be going into certain Chinese sectors. And Europe has a lot of businesses that do a lot of stuff in China. And so they're kind of going along reluctantly with some of this. And again, to see the United States like telling them you have to take a hit at home and you have to tell your companies that they can't invest in China anymore, 
oh, and by the way, then we had to rush home to stop the the U.S. economy from defaulting. Right. It just it's a it is a problem, and it's not it's ultimately it's the Republicans' fault, not Joe Biden's. But we shouldn't pretend like this doesn't matter. Yeah, it's totally dysfunctional. I mean, ultimately, I'm sure these countries were like, look, uh, if my choice is you default on your debt or you cancel this trip, like cancel the trip. Cancel but like the trip, that's yeah. an absurd <laughs> choice yeah. to have to yeah. make for Joe Biden. Yeah. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. I, listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Okay, so Ben, in back home, speaking of dysfunction, we are learning more about just how badly the Air Force screwed up when it comes to protecting classified information and that massive leak of Pentagon documents by a 21-year-old IT specialist named Jack Teixeira. Prosecutors say Teixeira was reprimanded on two separate occasions for mishandling classified information. In September 2022, he was observed taking notes on classified intelligence and putting those notes in his pocket. Then a month later, Teixeira got in trouble because he attended a classified briefing and started asking detailed questions. <laughs> <laughs> the IT guy was at a classified briefing asking questions. Then there was a third incident where Teixeira was caught looking at intelligence, not related to his duties, but he wasn't reprimanded. 
Ben, like I think back to our days at the White House and how like anxious I would feel asking to get read into something or to see a document or to be a part of a meeting and how closely held we pretended Or you could be asked to leave meetings in this situation all the time. Like we have to skinny down to like some super red and Yeah, the real meeting after the meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think we both, when we heard about this story, were like, how did the Air Force not like have ways to monitor what this guy was looking at? Now it seems like in fact, it's worse than that. They caught him and they just failed to do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to tell you that this whole thing has really made me realize that there's a much deeper cultural problem. <laughs> because For sure. clearly the, the the Air Force in this case, but you have to kind of think this might be going on in other you know branches of the military or the intelligence community. Like if you're in their tent, you're just kind of in. You're wandering around. You can read whatever you want. You can take notes on stuff. I mean, these are the reddest of red flags that this guy was exhibiting. And this does suggest notes. the need for like a pretty massive cultural shift. Like we said, you're not going to plug every leak, but this one didn't seem like you needed, you know, uh, George Smiley or Inspector Clouseau to like uncover the fucking mole here. I mean, uh, right before we started taping, uh, uh, Ashley from our team sent around a clip where the head of the German Ford Intelligence was complaining that it's hard to recruit because his recruits want to work from home and they can't take their personal cell phones <laughs> yeah, to work. Yeah, yeah. So well, maybe there is a broader yeah. challenging cultural shift happening. Um, but related to the Teixeira story, that CNN had a depressing piece last week about efforts to identify and root out extremists in the military. It was called the Countering Extremism Working Group. Yeah. It was quietly abandoned because of Republican attacks of the military is woke. And uh, we've long known that the military has a big far-right extremism problem in its ranks. The Department of Homeland Security in 2009, when we were in the White House, talked about this, how veterans were prone to getting recruited by these groups. Republicans attacked us. Janet Napolitano had to walk it back. That was shameful. We shouldn't have done that. Yeah. But like fast forward a few years, and I saw an analysis that found 15% of the January 6th insurrectionists had prior military experience. So it's clearly like there's a, there's a problem and it's not going away. And there were some, like recently over the course of last week too, like the first active duty person uh, got prosecuted for January 6th. I mean- there's a real problem here. And um, look, some of this is just, you know, demographic, right? Like it's um, young white men, you know, young white men from certain parts of the country that are super conservative going to the military and military is an institution with you know, millions of people. So the kind of extremism we see in society right. is going to be right. represent military. However, you know, highly trained, uh, you know, armed people uh, uh, who you know, also in extreme circumstances, it might make them more prone to radicalization. So this has clearly been like an elephant in the room of the conversation about extremism for some time. We've talked about in the context of like the Navy SEAL community that mm -hmm. Eddie Gallagher came out of, the war, war criminal. criminal yeah. But part of what I think the Republicans do in constantly attacking the military for being woke because of things like, you know, openness to transgender participation it's kind of projection too. Like some of it's like, oh, they can score political points on something that the military did that feels woke. But I think part of it is to kind of keep the attention in that direction. Right. There's not some problem in the military with it being woke. There's there's not some issue where like the U.S. military is not carrying out its functions because it's woke. If anything, this is more corrosive because the U.S. military, in addition to this being a threat to, to the broader extremism picture in the United States, is a big diverse institution. And I feel bad for people who have to serve with like white nationalist lunatics in the yes. military too. You That's know? what we should be feeling bad like, for. Yeah, yeah the co the like, unit, yeah. If you're like the only, you know, black male and a member of a unit where there's a bunch of like Jack Teixeiras who are posting videos of themselves saying the N-word and anti-Semitic slurs and firing guns, you would be scared for your life. 
Yeah, and can you imagine how much of that there is? I mean, it's, it'd yeah. be, they should be setting up, I, I hope they are, a kind of reporting channels for people to raise this. I'm not trying to turn this into like, I mean, look, some the military, like the language is probably not perfect all the time. I get it, right? But um, this is something that I think is going to continue to be with us. And precisely because it's hard to have a conversation in open politics about this, it's something that the, the military itself is going to have to handle in-house. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Um, speaking of classified information, uh, we learned an intriguing new detail about the investigation of President Trump hoarding of classified information. The New York Times reported that prosecutors have issued a subpoena for information about Trump's business dealings in foreign countries since he took office. That includes a request for quotes from the New York Times, details on the Trump organization's real estate licensing and development dealings in seven countries, China, France, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE, and Oman. It starts in 2017 when he took office. Previously, we heard that prosecutors wanted details about Trump's dealings with the Saudi-owned Live Golf Tour. Maybe the same thing here. Uh, ben, clearly these guys are looking into any connection between Trump taking these documents and foreign dealings. I'm struggling with whether this is an obvious investigative step, whether there's smoke, there's fire. What's your take with the caveat that we're both totally speculating? I mean, with the fact that you have four Gulf countries on this thing, um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, Oman, um, you know, it, it, it suggests to me that that everything we've been talking about, you know, is coming to play here, which is that if they're kind of looking at his conduct around Mar-a-Lago, around corruption, around what may have been these documents or who may have been sharing it with, the most obvious, you know, corruption, you know, Trump tends to be corrupt and commit crimes in public. And like, the, the, you know, there's so much money being pumped into Trump properties from Saudi Arabia and the UAE and these countries that I don't know how you don't end up looking in this direction. And the reality is if you have like an empowered special counsel who is, doesn't like this stuff and you start pulling these threads, like you're going to find all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it does sound like it's creating some, um, the, the internal lawyers uh, are quitting left and right from, from Trump's team. They're all blaming Boris Epstein for obstructing them, who's sort of like the in-house counsel. In a previous life, he was like the surrogate booking guy at the White House, sort of a marble mouth idiot propagandist. And the good thing that could come out of this is, look, this may not stop him from becoming president. I'm not ready to put Jack Smith, the special counsel, in a, in a Superman suit no, like uh, Bob Mueller. But like, if this can help blunt this kind of growing snowball of corruption from places like Saudi Arabia to American politics, like that could be good. Yeah, you know? that could be good. And also, we I think some of the recent focus groups that Washington Post did found that people are sort of aware of the corruption cases and don't yeah. like them or the investigations. Two stories out of Iran, Ben. So first, the Iranian government executed three men who were sentenced in connection with last year's anti-government protests after the murder of a young Iranian woman named Masa Amini. Uh, Amnesty International says these men were tortured into making false confessions. Iran has executed seven protesters since last December. Uh, just dozens more have been uh, charged with capital offenses or sentenced to death. Also in Iran on Monday, Iran's Supreme Leader fired the country's top national security official. This guy's name is Ali Shamkani. Uh, he was until recently the secretary of the Supreme National Council, which handles security and foreign policy. I think sort of the U.S. National Security Advisor equivalent. He led the effort to restore ties with Saudi Arabia. Uh, the New York Times said um, Shamkani was pushed out after his deputy was executed after charges that he spied for the British government. Uh, he was accused of corruption, failing to get Iran back into the Iran nuclear agreement. That was sort of an interesting one. And mm. in that his replacement is some sort of military leader with no experience in diplomacy. So not great all around. 
How do you like to be that guy who, you know, it's not a comfortable place to probably be in retirement, you know, nope. <laughs> when you've been fired as a, I mean, look, I, I uh, obviously in the internal matters, they're dug in, they're going to crack down. It, it's it's tragic. And I don't think it's going to make the opposition to the regime go away. It's just that how they reflexively deal with it. It does feel like things are unsteady there. And again, the variable we, we've talked about the nuclear issue and how far along they are with their nuclear program. The other variable that we haven't talked about in a little bit is the Supreme Leader's health. Like, he's old. It's true. And it feels like underneath him, it's not kind of clear where the power is going. No. Um, and, and so the possibility of there being a vacuum that is filled probably by, like, the hardline military types in the aftermath of the Supreme Leader is, is quite high. But that's something to watch. Like, uh, uh, geopolitical variables, like a... We, we've talked about the internal instability, but, like, a leadership you know, transition in Iran could be quite a mess. Absolutely. Uh, another story out of the military here. So U.S. military officials are walking back previous claims that a U.S. drone strike in Syria killed a senior al-Qaeda leader. Uh, a bunch of analysts, experts, humanitarian groups in the region say that the May 3rd strike in Syria by the Pentagon actually killed a 56-year-old man named Latfi Hassan Misto, who had no ties to extremist groups and was literally just like tending to his sheep when he was killed. Uh, Misto is the a father of 10. Ben, the last time there was uh, reporting like this about, you know, a disastrously wrong drone strike was two years ago when the Pentagon mistakenly killed 10 members of an Afghan family in Kabul. Uh, they thought they were targeting an ISIS-K member connected to the attack outside the Kabul airport. After incidents like this, there is often an after-action report. There's uh, conversations about, you know, biases that led them to take a strike when they shouldn't and ignore uh, information that would have dissuaded them from from moving forward. Maybe there's some changes to the targeting process. There is very rarely accountability. And I do think in this case, it will be important to watch and see if something changes here because um, I think this isn't something that happened in the fog of war. It doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like there was some imminent threat yeah. and someone reacting, you know, quickly. It sounds like they just got the wrong guy. They had all the time in the world to collect information and they just killed an innocent person. And that just cannot happen. It just can't. And, and part of the reason why is that if they can make a mistake in that circumstance um, once, like that it calls into question all the strikes they take, right. right? I mean, if you have the opportunity to kind of observe something for a while and are just this wrong about who the person is. I mean, Afghanistan was a, a complete tragedy and catastrophe, it, it was at least, as you say, it was like a dynamic situation. It was, you know, uh, after an attack, you know, trying to prevent another attack that appeared imminent. If you can demonstrate accountability and kind of corrective measures that you're taking after something like this, then then how can people have confidence that future strikes in, in Syria are, are, are not, you know, similarly compromised? So, they need to accountability is a question or, or at least also like explaining how you could have got this wrong but it does call the question just how long are we going to be using this tool is drone or drone strikes and this is where i felt you know the obama record and we've talked about this in the past the one thing i'd say is like what i always felt the most uncomfortable about was the kind of open ended nature of this thing mm -hmm. it'd be one thing to say like we're going to use drones for a couple of years to till we you know the al qaeda threat is reduced to this level or till Congress you know, withdraws an authorization for the use of force. 
we, here we are like a decade later, you know, and, and it seems like this is just an open-ended thing. Yeah. And, you know, the more I think about this, I mean, I, the, I guess this was sort of in the time period where there was an attack on that U.S. base in Syria. So maybe they thought, maybe this was associated with that, but still, I mean, it, it I think the, yeah, the, you're the right. point still yeah, no, you're stands right. that like, we shouldn't be getting these things wrong. The point still stands. And also that's a sign of like, does that mean, you know, should we be relaxing all of our like I don't know what happened here, but like if if what happened, and that's is that in the aftermath of an attack like that, they they reduce the threshold, right? Open the aperture. And- Maybe they shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. You know, like I get the impulse to do it. You want to find who did this, but like th- this will only make that harder in the future. Absolutely. And I saw a story in the Intercept reported that uh, some of the survivors of that strike in Afghanistan, the tragic mistake two years ago, are now in the U.S. I think in California. But they still haven't gotten any financial compensation from the U.S. government, which yeah. seems like inconceivable. That seems to me. inconceivable. Yeah. Uh, fix that if you're listening. Yes. So, speaking of uh, the Pentagon, Ben. So on Monday, an AI-generated image of the Pentagon pouring out smoke on fire after some like explosion went viral on Twitter. Panicked people, led to a dip in the stock market. Turns out it was just fake. It was AI generated. So. A lot of the idiots spreading this hoax had blue check marks, of course. They pay Elon for that privilege to disseminate fake news. The RT, the Russian propaganda network, pushed it around too. I think it was on some state TV in Russia as well. So, you know, Ben, I think it was all fun and games when we were retweeting the uh, Balenciaga Pope. That was a great time. But (laughs) I worry like this is the future of AI on social media, at least on Twitter, since Elon doesn't seem to care. But I, I just read today that the White House is now, I think, starting a process for how to I don't know, regulate or rein in AI. Yeah, which is a massive endeavor because it touches (laughs) everything from education to public health to financial markets to national security, right? Just to take this example, this issue of images and deep fakes, you know, it's not hard. This is like a relatively straightforward one, like fake image of the Pentagon fire, market dips, some blue check marks look like a bunch of rubes, but, you know. But I, I was thinking in the context of like a Sudan civil war, right? You could create like a, fake AI generated version of the two warlords and like be giving like instructions to paramilitary forces, right? So this isn't just disinformation campaigns. You could like really destabilize countries. Fake atrocities. Yeah, yeah, fake atrocities enrage, you know, certain communities. Uh, A a video of a fake burning Quran. Fake burning Quran. Imagine what that would have done back in the day or still today. So to me, like one place where this is clearly going in conversations is is there, there's going to have to be some way mm-hmm. of verifying images, you know, um, or, or, you know, whether they're, they're images or videos, something that's like a signature, like some yeah. blue check mark. Some way this is actually it. why the blue check mark thing. I know. That, like, I know. I, I'm, re- I'm just continuing to realize how much it sucks because if, if your only battle on behalf of like some objective reality is, is verification, and then you basically turn verification into a joke. That's a problem. It's a real bummer. Uh, Some quicker headlines, just a flag for everybody. So the European Union fined uh, Meta, Facebook, $1.3 billion for breaking EU privacy laws by transferring data from Europe to the US without proper safeguards. This is the biggest financial penalty for a company in the five years since the EU enacted its uh, general data uh, protection regulation, which is designed to protect people's online data. Facebook says they're going to appeal it. Best of luck. 
Uh, also, Ben, I saw the first ever female Arab astronaut has arrived at the International Space Station. Her name is Rayana Barnawi. She's one of two Saudi astronauts on this mission. She's going to conduct stem cell and breast cancer research during her 10 days at the space station. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman said that the entire nation is proud of Barnawi and that he can't wait to unjustly imprison her upon her return. <laughs> I made up that last part, but you know, it's cool that she's up there. It's cool that she's up there. Um, who is like the, the worst Boston sports free agent signing that you can think of or, or, mm, or trade or something? I don't know. That'll take me. Well, we did trade Babe Ruth. You did trade Babe Ruth. Yeah. I mean, I, the point I'm making here is that it's kind of funny to me that Meta is named Meta because basically that's like they, they bet this whole company on the metaverse, which yeah. has now failed. And it's funny that they're saddled by the name. It'd be like, you know, the, the Mets most infamously signed Bobby Bonilla to this right. contract. Still, you're still paying him, I We're believe. still paying him. It'd be like if we changed our name from the Mets to the New York Bobby Bonillas. <laughs> <laughs> like, so first of all, that's funny. The $1.3 billion fine to try to get them to not um, move any European data to the U.S., that's what it was about, saying that like European data privacy mandates that, it, that data stay in Europe because it's not safe in the U.S. and right. intelligence agents. Like that's a pretty big marker to lay down from the Europeans. So this will go through appeals, but like it does show that on these tech questions from social media to data and, you know, we AI is looming the horizon that like the Europeans appetite to regulate is going up, not yeah. down. And it could, hopefully it'll yeah. help us raise our, uh, yeah. our levels too. Uh, the newly reelected Greek prime minister says his government is going to investigate a video that shows about a dozen asylum seekers from Somalia, Eritrea, and Ethiopia, including several children and a six-month-old baby being taken in a van to a dock on the southern tip of the island of Lesbos, transferred to a speedboat, motored out into the sea, transferred again to a Greek Coast Guard vessel, driven out of Greece's territorial waters, and then abandoned in a black inflatable raft in the middle of the ocean, six-month-old baby. Uh, luckily, these people were rescued by the Turkish Coast Guard. Then, obviously, like our immigration policy record is uh, got some real horrible stains on it, but the video of these fucking monsters passing a baby from one boat to another, is like it's just sort of yeah, it's, it's burned into my memory now. Yeah, the New York Times deserves credit Great for investigation. the investigation. I mean, there have been rumors of this kind of thing happening. And one of the things that's really tragic when you see something like this is you realize, shit, we're seeing this one. How many times does this happen? Yeah. How many boats did not survive? At, yeah. You know, um, yeah, there's an activist with like a long lens and a video camera. E exactly. Yeah. That's the only reason they got this one. And, and you know, the Greek government has taken like a hard line. Like this is... I mean, this may not be their overt policy, but this is definitely the orientation that they've moved to with, by the way, the support of the European Union. <laughs> so so this is, you know, this is where immigration policy has gone in Europe. We see where the immigration policy is in the U.S. with Biden, you know, maintaining a lot of the, the strict uh, Trump era rules. I mean, like there needs to be a shift back to figuring out how to have a more humane approach. Like I get that open door policies are, are not, you know, going to take in, in the West. But we seem to have lost the thread on the humanity of this. Absolutely. Even at the height of the refugee crisis in 2015-16, there was more of a, an effort to try to treat people humanely. That may have generated some backlash, but I mean, I think we need to realize there's got to be a way to, to, to enforce policies without doing 
crap like this. Yeah. Speaking of losing the thread on uh, humanity, uh, soccer star uh, Vinicius Jr. is calling out racist soccer fans in Spain and the country itself for doing nothing to stop them. So Vinicius Jr. plays for Real Madrid. Uh, it's one of the best teams in Spain's La Liga, one of the best teams in the world. He posted a compilation video of fans in stadiums across Spain calling him a monkey and other vile things over and over and over again. Uh, Real Madrid said that this abuse qualifies as a hate crime. The idiot uh, chief executive of La Liga logged onto Twitter to defend Spanish fans. He started arguing with Vinicius Jr., going back and forth, which is outrageous. Uh, Lula da Silva, the president of Brazil, got asked about the matter at the G7. So this is like a global affair now. So Spain wants to jointly host uh, the 2030 World Cup with Portugal and Morocco. Hopefully that can be some kind of pressure point to get them to take some real action and fix this problem. And like, I don't know, permanently ban these fans that pull this shit because it's all on video. You can see who's doing it. Um, it's not deniable, but it's truly, it's like really appalling stuff. Yeah. And, and, and it's just like, you've seen this over the years, just like a bunch of racist garbage like from from soccer fans in parts of Europe at a pretty big scale too like this isn't just usually some one drunk guy these no, are like, like the whole, whole sections stadium, whole yeah. stadiums chanting complete bullshit and by the way like it's worth calling out these racist european fans like that you, you know your players like you're more than happy to pay all this money to bring players from African or Arab or other backgrounds right, or to play in your teams yeah. or Brazil and then just fucking, you know, treat them like dehumanized garbage. Like, fuck you. You know, like, it may, like, like you don't get, have that right to, like, buy players and then, you know, treat the ones who aren't your nationality or aren't white differently. So I do hope that there's like a concerted effort to root this out. And, yeah, like, I... It's, is it safe for the African bracket of the World Cup to go to Spain? I don't know. They have yeah. to show that it'll be safe for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of um, crazy soccer fans, there's this wild video that popped up, I think, over the weekend of there's a West Ham game against some Dutch club at West Ham. And a bunch of these ultras who are like the super right wing guys who like cover their faces and go beat the shit out of people jumped a barrier and started to try to get to the West Ham section where friends and family of the players sit. So this massive West Ham fan, this big British dude named, they call him Nolsey, he and this other guy just got to the top of the staircase that led up to the section and beat the shit out of every single ultra who tried to get up there until like they were ripped and bloodied <laughs> and battered, but like fought off 40 guys. I mean, maybe that's wild. the answer. Maybe we just need like Nolsey in all these <laughs> games, Nolsey's you know, bouncing. just like just bouncing. Yeah. But like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have to come to that. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's maybe true, we should true. clean up some yeah. problems. Uh, anyway, a couple of dumb things to close, Ben. So first, uh, there is a new entrance to the ongoing Gulf Country real estate dick measuring contest. Mm. So we talked about plans for the Lion Project in Saudi Arabia. That's the 170 yeah, yeah. kilometer, 170 kilometer long, 200 meter wide, 500 meter tall building that will absolutely never, ever be built. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not to be outdone, a Canadian entrepreneur named Michael Henderson has proposed creating a 900 foot tall, $5 billion replica of the moon in Dubai. Inside the moon will be a 4,000-room hotel. Ben's putting his head in his hand. A 10,000-capacity arena, a nightclub, and a wellness center. Uh, Henderson said, quote, We have the biggest brand in the world. Eight billion people know our brand, and we haven't even started yet. That brand being the literal moon. Uh, so there you go, Ben. Uh, I guess what, at what point do you think the reporters covering the stuff are like, maybe we shouldn't 
publish this. There's just such a, a, a like a late stage capitalist dystopian vibe <laughs> to all these Gulf real estate projects. It's just like the, the combination of like megalomania and tackiness. Totally. You know, like why would you if, if you had this kind of money? What, why would you want to build a replica of the moon in Dubai? You know, like it, it, and apparently other sort of like moon replica structures that have been built are so bright that they block out the natural sky that they cause like massive light pollution. Like the irony is so rich and so yeah, layered. Yeah, yeah. And the moon is like, I wonder how the moon feels about being a brand. Yeah, poor know? moon. It's just kind of like a moon. Yeah, yeah, first we all said it was made of cheese and now this. It's just. It's I mean, thing. for that money, you could just go to the moon and build a colony up there. I mean, yeah. You know, get the, get which I think the Emiratis are probably doing too. Grab you know? Elon. Yeah, yeah. yeah grab Elon. the blue checks. Yeah. Get going. Uh, last thing, an aide to disgraced former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson told some stories about Boris's dealings with other European heads of state. He said Boris called French President Emmanuel Macron uh, Putin's lick spittle. He said he would, quote, punch his lights out and that he wanted, quote, an orgy of frog bashing. <laughs> Boris also Wait, called... is that, I mean, where is that on the hierarchy of insults? That... Frog, yeah. Can I you know. say that? I mean, why, why do we call the French frogs? Do they eat frogs' legs? They eat legs? frogs' legs, I think. But I, I don't know if that's like, I don't know where that one is either. That's a good question. I'll ask, uh, you know, I'll ask. uh, We get some French people here. Yeah. Yeah, So Boris also called uh, Macron uh, a word that starts with C that our friends on Pod Save the UK are comfortable saying, but I am not. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. Is that a norm thing? Is that like word more normal over there? Yeah, that word is. is. Because all the Brits I know, they use that word, especially women seem to use that word a lot over there. Yeah. yeah. that, That word to me is like the word you don't say. It's on. You know? It's on a list that only has about three or four words on it for me. Yeah, right. There's yeah. there's a whole bucket of like yeah. slurs that you never yeah, say, yeah. but in terms but of just then like profanity, like, yeah, there's things you like just the don't. The c word yeah, is like yeah. that's a big yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, <laughs> Boris probably don't want to go to San Tropez. The or whatever. funny thing about that is like the punch lights out. Could you actually see Boris Johnson like? getting in a fight. Like, it's, a, it's such a false bravado to this. Yeah. He's the he's kind of ever... guy who would, like, take a swing and fall over backwards, you know? like or have his uh, aide beat you up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have his, yeah, have his, like, bigger friend from Eden beat you up or something. Yeah. <laughs> Eden yeah, Oxford yeah. friend. Nolsey, just... Nolsey, you know? That's so incredible. I mean, this guy was the prime minister for a long time. Uh, yeah, you wonder why he got along with Trump. Um, but Macron, it's kind of interesting. I, I, he's one of those leaders you, you kind of want to know privately what all the other leaders think about him. Yeah, he does seem to trigger these he guys. He seems like he triggers these guys, you know, um, pretty uniformly. Yeah. They, you know, I'm not suggesting it justifies Boris Johnson. but so. No, no, nor I, but it's interesting. Uh, okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, you'll hear Ben's interview with Mark Malik Brown. So stick around for that. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi, I'm Aaron Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. 
Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life, maybe that's yourself, to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Well, I am very pleased to welcome to Pod Save the World, Mark Malik Brown, who's the president of the Open Society Foundations, uh, the world's largest private funder of independent groups working for justice, democracy, human rights. Uh, Mark also has a a really extraordinary career uh, over several decades working in the United Nations system, the World Bank, the British government. So, Mark, thanks so much for for joining us here. No, no thank you, Ben. Okay, so, you know, OSF, uh, for, for those who don't know, is really on the front lines uh, and has been for, for decades in terms of supporting civil society and supporting uh, people working for, for human rights and, and, and democratic values all over the world. Um, we cover these issues a lot on this podcast, Mark, and, and obviously we've been living through over the last decade or two uh, a democratic recession here, um, and one in which there's been a, a concerted effort, I think, uh, to make it harder for, for OSF and it, the people it supports to do their work with restrictive laws and you know conspiracy theories and restrictions on funding for NGOs. Um, just speaking generally, um, as someone who's been in this space for a long time, uh, how does that impact the work of an OSF? How, how do you guys feel um, the kind of closing space around civil society generally in your work? It's gotten, you're right, it's gotten a lot harder, a lot more challenging. But of course, when you win victories, therefore a lot more rewarding. I mean, you know, go back to the 90s, 1990s, and there was a sort of a sense of inevitability about, you know, this rollout of democracy reaching pretty much every corner of the world. We reached a point where more than two-thirds of countries were fully-fledged uh, democracies, and it wasn't clear that trend was going to stop. And, you know, at that time, we were able to operate under a fairly simple sort of narrative formula, in a way, or theory of change formula, maybe better to put it, where, you know, democracy was rolling out, people were adopting constitutions, they were holding elections. And yet the problem was there wasn't a strong civil society to contest these governments, some of which still had a lot of people in them from previous more authoritarian governments. So building up the civil society as the the, the other side, if you like, of the scales to, to, to democratic institutions and constitutionalism seemed the way to make those democracies really breathe and live and, and, and introduce challenge to ruling elites. You know, fast forward to now, and we've gone through 17 years of democracy deficit, where every year Freedom House has reported a decline in the amount of democracy in the world. Uh, and, 
you know, organizations like ours are in many parts of the world on the back foot and in fact banned uh, essentially from from many countries. So it is a much more challenging environment, but not least because that theory of change doesn't work anymore. You know, you've got to really understand the anatomy of power in these countries much more clearly to work out where the levers of change still are, you know, what will improve the quality of governance, which will, what will offer more protection to human rights. So I think we're down to a, you know, almost much more micro country by country uh, effort to, to find strategies to protect and rebuild democracy and human rights. So, and I want to get to kind of solutions and, and what's working, but kind of one more question about the challenge. OSF operates globally, right? So a lot of people think in terms of the extraordinary work that's been done in, in Central and Eastern Europe, but obviously you guys are also in Africa, you're in Latin America, you're in Asia. And I'm tr- curious, how, how common are the challenges you face? Because there have been these kind of copycat laws uh, and approaches around um, you know, stamping out civil society or choking off any resourcing for civil society. Do you see that the democratic deficit, the challenge as distinct in different regions, or do you feel like there's a common playbook that, that you're confronting in, in all parts of the world? Well, I, I think there is a common playbook, but it passes through the filter of local conditions. So, you know, there are significant differences across countries and, and, and regions. But, you know, the common playbook is, you know, democracy is not delivering results for citizens, you know, in despair, reach out for a more populist solution, you know, easy answers are promised, they're rarely delivered. And, you know, in that probably lies the seeds of the future defeat of authoritarianism. I mean, because, you know, populist government is much less able than democratic government to ultimately deliver the economic security, the welfare, the opportunity that people want. So, you know, I don't think we, we, we should despair about democracy. This is a setback, but it needn't be a fatal one. And, you know, in every country, we see different coalitions of, of either political parties, but increasingly young activists, social activist movements, uh, single issue groups, think tanks of different kinds, all combining to start to offer alternatives to either a failing populism or in other places, a democracy which isn't delivering for people. Yeah, well, that turns us into kind of solutions. Um, and um, I, I want to talk first about kind of the role of governments and then getting into what OSF is doing. I mean, if you look at the G7 that just took place, on the one end, you've seen the United States, far more so than in recent years, um, kind of embrace the language of democracy promotion and hold democracy summits and kind of frame conflicts like the war in Ukraine or the competition with China around democratic values. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, at the G7, you had Narendra Modi from India kind of getting the red carpet welcome. Um, obviously, he's on the right side from the G7's perspective of geopolitical competition with China, but we've talked a lot about democratic backsliding and populism in India um, on this podcast. Um how do you see the the the, uh, the opportunity uh, in the G7 in the United States kind of embracing the language of democracy? But how does that how do you deal with the challenge of at the same time they're doing that, 
you know, they're embracing a Modi, they're courting a Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, what, what, what good can you take from, from what's happening around the G7 and, and what challenges do you see from the kind of narrower geopolitical interests that sometimes complicate the rhetoric of democracy promotion? Well, you know, on the one hand, I think, you know, Biden genuinely has, at least temporarily, uh, saved democracy in the US and should be celebrated as such. That said, I think there is, you know, a naivety that comes maybe from the euphoric uh, blood-to-the-head moment of a campaign promise rather than a considered policy promise in government that led to these democracy summits. Because, you know, in truth, you know, Biden has uh, spent more years in Washington than pretty much any, pol- well, than any other politician to occupy the presidency of all people uh, might have remembered that interests ultimately trump values uh, when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, I don't say that with any enthusiasm. I say it with regret, but it's, you know, a fact of life. Uh, And so, you know, I think India is really the case in point, because here is a country which is treating its Muslim minority in a very reckless way with disregard for their human rights on, on, in many cases. Uh, and yet is viewed by the US as a vital ally in the containment of China, a member of the Quad, etc. And, um, you know, so it's getting a free pass on human rights. It's getting a free pass from the US on human rights. And, um, you know, Saudi Arabia, an even more embarrassing U-turn for a president who, you know, not wanted to visit and who then the, the war in Ukraine forced him to turn to Saudi uh, to sustain American, or not so actually not the US, but to sustain the US's allies, uh, you know, energy security. Uh, and so... It's, you know, he should have foreseen that. I mean, international politics delivers you surprises every day, but the only surprise that you shouldn't have is that in responding to the crises and the strategic threats you face, you're going to fall back on interests over values. And, you know, in that sense, you know, I think he, 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 he probably, you know, he just hadn't given these democracy summits enough thought in advance. Yeah. Well, I think what they would say, too, if coming out of something like the G7, right, is that Ukraine is so fundamental to the survivability or momentum around democracy that sometimes you have to make those those trade-offs. I mean, in your work at OSF, I mean, how central do you, do you accept the premise that Ukraine is kind of the main event in some ways in terms of the fault line between, you know, a totalitarian or at least autocratic Russia and a democratic uh, or aspiring uh, democrat democratic Ukraine. Do, do do you do you believe that that the 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 outcome of that conflict, based on the the your networks around the globe, that the outcome of that com- conflict will ripple beyond just uh, the space of Ukraine itself? Yeah, I do. Uh, and, you know, but, but I think that makes OSF a little unusual. I mean, we've had uh, a office and a program and a foundation in Ukraine uh, for more than 25 years. And um, uh, we've spent more than a quarter of a billion dollars there on democracy, human rights, economic reform, you know, over many years with considerable frustration because you know, corruption continued. There were some very weak governments in quick succession um, 
the biggest shot in the arm for Ukraine democracy and nation building has been Putin's invasion. Um, You know, tragic though it's been in terms of the loss of life. And, you know, so we are really committed to Ukraine and see this as much more than just a war in Europe that shouldn't preoccupy the wider world when a permanent member of the Security Council invades a neighbour without cause. You know, it is a breach of the most fundamental cardinal rule of the UN-based international system. So it's a big deal. Um, You know, that said, you know, I have in recent weeks, months, you know, been in Africa a couple of times, been in countries like Lebanon, been in Latin America, and seen that there is a really racing uh, bushfire of a crisis across many economies where, you know, debt is rapidly becoming unsustainable. There is inflation in food and energy prices. There is major disruption of supply chains. All of it aggravated by the Ukraine conflict, which disrupted not just energy supplies, but wheat supplies, grain supplies as well. And, you know, there just simply isn't enough attention from G7 leaders to this second crisis, often called the polycrisis. And, you know, that has led to a huge anger about double standards that comes on the heels of the anger felt around COVID access issues of Africa not getting COVID drugs until two years after the or vaccinations until two years after the rest of the world kind of thing. And, you know, so there is a real anger which has been compounded by this, uh, by, by, by this crisis. And, you know, obviously, while I would argue that Ukraine is very different to those situations where America has gone in to other countries without the full blessing of the UN Security Council. Nevertheless, for many, there is over Kosovo and Iraq, uh, as well as more generally on Middle East policy by the US, a big whiff of double standards. And so, you know, in that context, um, it's created a huge anger. And, you know, the G7 communique last weekend, which had lots of new commitments and exciting stuff about F-16s for Ukraine and had the visit of Zelensky himself to the summit, you know, was the normal sort of mix of nice words and good intentions, but not hard answers when it came to this other crisis. Yeah, and do you, do you think put the debt piece of that at the at the top? I mean, what you know, so I think people aren't aware of just how much you know a huge swath of uh, developing countries are, are on the precipice of default. It's not just the United States with its self-imposed one. Do you think the G7 can be doing more around debt forgiveness or restructuring? Yeah, at the very minimum, you would have expected the G7 to have blessed some debt standstills for countries most in need, which isn't even debt reductions or write-offs. It's just standstill on interest, which then accumulates. So, um, you know, there were some very modest measures which would have produced some relief and headroom for countries in terrible difficulty at the moment. And it's a combination of both low-income countries and middle-income ones. Case of middle income ones, they've, you know, overborrowed in euro bonds. Sometimes they've overborrowed from the Chinese as well, and you know, and and for the poor ones, it's a lot of it's official debt. It's not not 
private sector debt. But in each case, you know, rising interest rates, depreciating local currencies, falling state revenues because of disruptions of exports, you know, all of these things are combining to make the debt service really difficult and reach critical crisis levels. And, you know, it's very striking to me. I was recently at the spring meetings of the World Bank and IMF in Washington, where there was a sort of technical conversation in technical language about how to nudge up the so-called capital adequacy of the World Bank to essentially let, allow it to lend a little bit more. Uh, and then went from there to Nairobi, Kenya, where the sense of just sheer crisis and alarm and a sort of debt doomsday scenario was was huge. Civil servants hadn't been paid that month, you know, and uh, across the continent, there was a real sense that the, these number of debt crises, which at the moment, the most front ones are Zambia and Ghana, and Ghana, a little bit of good news, there was a deal last week, um, a restructuring of the debt deal. But, you know, Zambia is still struggling to complete um, and, you know, people can't help but point out a California bank gets into trouble, it gets rescued in three days. Zambia's been several years uh, waiting for its debt deal and still hasn't got it. And so this sense of how the West, whether it's from COVID or to a bank failure, can deploy whatever it takes to stabilise the situation when its own citizens are at risk is reticent to the point of inaction uh, when it comes to doing more than just words and sympathy for yeah. the needs of developing countries. So it's a pretty bad time out there in terms of north-south relations. Yeah, no, I think this is a really good point. I think it's the most under-discussed crisis in the world right now. And it's somewhat of our own making in that you know you had a lot of cheap credit when interest rates were flat our raising of interest rates in the United States is compounding this debt crisis on top of COVID and, and the war in Ukraine. I do want to ask you about uh, a, a, you know, kind of a good news story. You were just in Brazil, um, where we've actually seen this kind of interesting coalition between the kind of established progressive alternative to populism and Lula, but a kind of younger um, a, a network of, of folks who came together um, to, to really try to save democracy in Brazil. I mean, what did you find there? What worked in Brazil? I'm not saying they're out of the woods completely, but what worked there that people could learn from? What What, what did you leave in terms of your impression uh, of where Brazil is going? Well, look, I mean, I think the first thing is to just reaffirm they're not out of the woods. This is a kind of quite weak uh, government. You know, it, it only won the popular vote by about one and a half percent the presidency, um, and it does not enjoy a majority in Congress. So it's quite limited in its legislative capabilities. Um, and that's critical because it is a system quite like the US's. And, and so its high hands are partially, uh, tied. But, you know, having, and, 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 you know, the right could come back at, you know, in the next election any time really and it's had its own January the 6th on January the 8th uh, when similarly it's, 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 it's presidential palace, it's court, it's legislature were invaded uh, by pro-Bolsonaro demonstrators so there's a fragility about it but behind that fragility is this dynamic sort of anthill of activists who, who built something remarkable and they come not I always use the analogy of, of 
British Labour Party, where, you know, we had governments where the leading figures in them were MPs from old labor union and mining districts in many cases and the you know the advisors who weren't ministers uh themselves came from similar party backgrounds and then under blair we got what we called new labor which had a network of people drawn in from think tanks from a ton of them had done been graduate students at the kennedy school in the u.s um and um you know, there were a lot of activists coming in from single-issue causes. And, you know, nothing reminded me more of the dawn of new Labour in the UK, it seems a long time ago, um, than sort of New Workers' Party, if you like, where, you know, extraordinary individuals, a woman who'd gone straight from a favela to 10 years of uh, of um playing sports for American uh, universities and uh, now is back as uh, returned as a social activist to inherit her sister who was assassinated, um, sort of mantle as as a leader of uh, black Afro-Brazilians and, you know, is now minister for racial affairs, uh, an extraordinary uh, indigenous woman who you know, has fought hard to protect the Amazon and the rights of indigenous peoples to their lands in the Amazon, now minister of a new ministry uh, for indigenous peoples affairs. And both of them were sworn in the same day in the presidential palace, two days after it had been all its windows blown out by the riots and assault on it of January the 8th this year. And, you know, a sense of renewal amidst that devastation, these two remarkable women, probably 18 inches apart in height, the very short indigenous uh, woman, this tall, striking uh, ex-volleyball player um, um, in, 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 who was who Minister for Racial Affairs. So, you know, a, a real sense of this and and a pride for us in OSF because this sort of revolving door of people going out of think tanks and social movements and into government and trying to drive through reform, then going back to the think tank social movement world. That to me is the modern anatomy of power in many places where, you know, it's ideas which are going to change things. And those ideas don't come from permanent living in government or from the increasingly sort of closed world of aging political parties, but they come from think tanks and social movements. And in Brazil, that virtuous revolving door seems to have been quite effectively uh, created. Well, so last question I want to ask you, uh, you know, globally, we've seen a lot of coordination among far right movements, uh, among autocrats. Um, what, what needs to happen for that uh, ecosystem that you're describing to, to globalize for, for progressives or small D Democrats uh, who are living in different parts of the world, but facing similar challenges to kind of work together. And obviously OSF is as networked as anybody. And I did want to ask, as you are working to create that outcome, which I think, you know, this podcast and our listeners would be very supportive of, you're constantly dealing with the conspiracy theories about, you know, George Soros. And does that matter? Is that, I mean, I, I see that as a, as people trying to disrupt any effort to create coordination by making it seem like some big conspiracy theory, when in fact, 
we're all very transparent about wanting to support human rights. I mean, how do you achieve that scale um, while kind of beating back these efforts to delegitimize your work? Well, let me take that second part first. And, and, and you know, I think it is, uh, you know, it's not, it, it, one can't pretend it isn't without its damage to certain susceptible audiences. This idea that we're somehow the dark face of some, you know, hidden conspiracy. Um, and, you know, George gets the brunt of it, but I have an honoured part as his henchman <laughs> in the UK who's busy yeah. apparently trying to recolonize America for the British crown. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, so it's a, it's a, it, it's, it's, their, their view seems to be that it's a strange mixture of, uh, secret Jewish activists and British royalists who are conspiring yeah. against, uh, the right in America. I sort of think there's an element of pride in being, you know, in who your enemies are about some of this. But I think, you know, it does do damage. And we just last week, you know, had, you know, a really v v vicious uh, Twitter attack on on George, which may have had up to a billion views through the network of retweeting that's happening to it. So one shouldn't, you know, underestimate this. But, you know, for me, you know, our legitimacy lies in two things, the partners we have and their credibility and authority in the communities and countries where they operate, and our ability to support the development of new solutions, either immediate urgent solutions to something like the debt crisis we were talking about, or longer-term patient solutions to global problems. And here, I, I would say this, Ben, that, you know, I've really, having been involved in democracy and government all my life, I have come to conclude this isn't actually a crisis of democracy. It's a crisis of governing. And, you know, that in all our countries, developed or developing alike, US, UK, Kenya, Brazil, you name it, there is this similar, similar shared sense that government simply isn't delivering, uh, that minorities feel excluded. I mean, minorities by economic status or ethnicity or, or, or class feel, ex or religion feel excluded. Um, but also that mainstream groups who've been used to an economic security for themselves and their families increasingly feel marginalized. And, you know, we're, and we're leaving a period of, you know, I know it's a phrase which is getting too much use nowadays, but of a neoliberal paradigm where small governments and leave it to big markets to sort out the allocation of wealth it is, has failed. Um, you know, and it had, it came to being on the shoulders of a new deal, which had also failed for completely other reasons. So we're a world casting around for a new political paradigm, if you like, of how to govern ourselves. And I think we don't want to make the mistakes of going back to the very big, big, big government of the new deal. Uh, we know there is a room for markets and, and the private sector, which was, was the oxygen was squeezed out of in that period. But nor do we want to continue the sin of neoliberalism, which is allowing the markets to sort, sort out our, our economic and social security and well-being. And so we're, we're casting around for how do we build the kind of government which can address our internal divisions and exclusions and build a much kinder, more inclusive kind of governance and globally a kind of government 
which both at the national and more global level can address these big strategic long-term problems that need sustained public investment over decades, such as the transition to green energy and the efforts to limit uh, global warming. And, you know, and so I think, you know, populism and failed democracy are two sides of the same coin of a governing idea that isn't delivering. And so I think we're all on this shared journey. And, you know, my vision for OSF is that over the next 10 years, we can see the social movements and the think tanks at the national level, which will together collectively uh, arrive at some kind of global consensus on the best way we should all govern ourselves. And I don't for a moment mean it's going to be world government. It'll be strong national government, but national governments which share a lot more of a view about how to best tackle these common problems we we all have. And I, you know, in the past, whether it was the Thatcher-Reagan years or the New Deal and welfare state years of, of a generation earlier, you know, it was a narrow range of think tanks and, and intellectuals and academics very heavily in those days concentrated in Washington and London who, and, and Cambridge Mass and a few other places who, who developed this or Chicago when it came to the Reagan, uh, Thatcher, uh, period. This time, the ideas for the new order will not come from such a narrow range of places. You know, we'll find them in India, we'll find them in China, we'll find them in Kenya or Brasilia. And, you know, that's what for me is the excitement of running OSF, that we can help seed the thinking that will produce a new and better way for us to govern ourselves. Well, look, that's a great note to end on, Mark. And, um, uh, you know, one thing I've noticed in, in being in this space is, one thing that's true today versus five or 10 years ago, certainly 10 years ago, is just the awareness of the challenges and, and the desire for new solutions and, and people feeling the, the need for mobilization. So uh, OSF is obviously a huge part of that, and we, we appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Thank you, Ben. Thanks again to Mark for joining the show. You know, maybe we'll just go to this Moon Hotel. I think they're building something like that in uh, Vegas. See, but Vegas would do it in a more tasteful way because it, it's pretty small. Mm-hmm. You know, like the these replicas are yeah, you know, New York, New yeah, York. Yeah, or it's something. like you know New York, New York, or the Eiffel Tower. There is kind right. of like a looks Fountain like a kid's Eiffel up. Tower. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm defending Vegas here, but still, um, just try better. Just like, give be me a more interesting. If you design. had that, but here's the thing: like, that's you put your finger on it. Like, these people have like a trillion dollars, right? They're like liquid to the tune of a trillion dollars. They can write checks. Think of what you would do with that money. Yeah, not build the moon. It's not this. It's like, it looks like a Death Star. Yeah, I would. It, well, yeah. I mean, kind of is. I guess it kind of is. Maybe, well, maybe it is. Maybe that's what this is really about. Excited for COP twenty eight. Yeah, they, the they can have COP twenty eight in the moon. In the yeah, moon. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, okay. Well, that's it for uh, for us this week. And uh, talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, D.B. Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support.
you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 